fresh manna fell to the ground as a gift from God while the Israelites were in the wilderness. This is what they ate for 40 years. It was fresh from the ovens of heaven, baked by the master baker himself. How the Israelites must have anticipated the taste and the smell of each morning's delivery. Just like the Israelites, you too can now enjoy the taste and smell of fresh manna. Today you will be listening to Pastor Bob Stewart, Associate Ministerial Director who oversees multi-ethnic ministries for the Michigan Conference of Seventh-day Adventist. And now, here's Pastor Bob Stewart. This morning we're going to talk about the heart of God. Have you ever wondered what God's heart is like? How does he feel about things? You know, in our world today, we know a lot about our hearts, of course, and we're kind of experts at the human heart. But when it comes to God, sometimes we don't think about it, we don't talk about God's heart much. So Lord willing, we're going to spend a little bit of time seeking to find out what God's heart is like this morning. I'd like you to bow with me in prayer. We're going to have another prayer as we begin. Father in heaven, this morning, Lord, as we bow before you, we want to thank you for bringing us, inviting us to your house of prayer. This is your house, Lord, and we've come in your name, seeking to worship you as you deserve. Father, we're not able to do that because our hearts are not right. And so we ask you to give us the heart to worship you in spirit and truth as you deserve. And as we open up your word today, we pray that we might behold wondrous things out of thy law, out of thy truth. Father, send your spirit upon us. Bless my brothers and sisters today with the ears to hear and the heart to understand. And I pray, Lord, that you would also touch the lips of your servant, that I might speak the words of life to my brothers and sisters today. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when you think about the most important organ of the body, medicine tells us that there are five essential organs that are in our body. And as you look at those this morning, It's the brain, the lungs, the heart, the liver, the kidneys. Which one would you say is the most important? Now, obviously, none of us would like to live without any of them, right? But if you had to choose, which one would you think is the most important? Well, if we look at the brain, for instance, I mean, we think, hey, the brain, right? How many would choose that? Can't live without a brain. Well, you know, there are actually people that are living without the use of their brain. They are called brain dead. You know, they have some brain damage or whatever. And in fact, you can live with half a brain. Most women think that most men live with half a brain, right? And science kind of (laughs) indicates that too. What about lungs? How could you live without lungs, right? Well, lungs are pretty important because they bring in the oxygen we need that, you know, goes throughout our system. Many of you probably know of Pastor Jay and Linda Gallimore. Linda Gallimore is living with only one lung. So you may know of people living with just one lung. So, you know, it's pretty important, but you can get by with just, you know, half a lung or one lung. What about the kidneys? Now, we don't often think of the kidneys as being that important, but if you didn't have kidneys, if your kidneys were not functioning, what would you be doing every other day? You'd be getting dialysis, 
That's what they call it. You may know of people who have to go to dialysis because their kidneys are not functioning. You can actually live with only one kidney. There are stories that you've probably heard in the news about people that have donated their kidney to somebody else. So, you know, it's important, but you can live with only one. What about the liver? I mean, that's pretty important. The liver detoxifies us. It takes out all of the poisons, you know, that are in our body. And you have to have a liver. But did you know that the liver of all the organs in our body is the only one that can regenerate itself? So, you know, even though we can have an impaired liver, it has the potential for regenerating itself. So that brings us to the heart. What about the heart? Can you live with half a heart? I don't know if you can. You can't live very long without it. You can live a really good life with one kidney and one lung and, you know, part of a liver as it regenerates itself. But if you've only got half a heart, you know, that's functioning, you're on a list that, you know, you need to get a new one. So we might be able to come to the conclusion this morning that anatomically speaking, the heart is the most important part of the body. Now, obviously, we could probably have medical people that would tell us, well, you know, there's another side to that, whatever. But for the sake of our subject this morning, we're going to conclude that the heart is probably one of the most important organs of our body. Now, the Bible actually talks a lot about the heart. In fact, there's somewhere around 762 times that the Bible mentions the word heart. And most of the time, we tend to think when we're talking about the heart, we tend to talk about what heart? Our hearts, right? Man's heart. In fact, there's a scripture that we oftentimes quote. Proverbs 4, verse 23 says, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the, what? The issues of life. If we were to put that into a little bit more modern version, let's look at it this way from this particular version. Above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. So how important would you say that that verse says the heart is in the Bible? Is that pretty important? Yeah. In other words, everything you do flows out of your heart, whether it's good or whether it's bad. Amen? And yet, what does the Bible say about the condition of the heart? Well, it says in Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10, The heart is deceitful above all things and what? Desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I try in the reins, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doing. So according to the Bible, what's the condition of our hearts, man's heart? It's not in a good condition, right? We're all born with hearts that are deceitful and desperately wicked. And that's why the Bible says that we need a new heart. Amen? And so you can go on and on. We can look at others. I mean, I just listed up a bunch of them. You can't read them from here. But but if you looked at all these other statements about the heart, Psalms 51, creating me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit within me. And we can go page after page of the 700 plus you know, statements in the Bible about the heart. But it all really goes back to this particular situation that took place in heaven that's told to us by Ezekiel in the book Ezekiel 28. It says in Ezekiel 28, verse 6 and verse 17, it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have set your heart 
as the heart of God. So in heaven, Lucifer, the highest archangel, set his heart to be like the heart of God. Now, that would seem like it's a good thing, amen? Well, yes and no. If he was really seeking for the heart of God, the self-sacrificing heart of God, but he was actually looking for a heart where he interpreted God as being the dictator, the one that was on top, the one that called all the shots, right? So Ezekiel tells us that he set his heart as the heart of God. And then in verse 17, God says of him, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. So we see that even in heaven, there was a problem with hearts, that the heart of Lucifer, where it all began, the origin, you could say, of all prejudice, the origin of all tribalism and all case, all classifying people and different places and different circumstances like that, it all originated with Lucifer. And Lucifer passed on that evil heart to you and I. So that's where the heart came from. But our purpose this morning is not so much to talk about man's heart or even fallen angels' hearts, but it's to talk about God's heart. So what does the heart of God look like? When we talk about God's heart, if we do at all, what do we know about it? Well, in Genesis chapter 6, let's go back there, Genesis chapter 6, we see one of the first places that the Bible talks to us about God's heart. In fact, this is a place where it actually talks about side by side man's heart and God's heart together. And of course, it's at the beginning or just before the flood. In chapter 6 of Genesis, verse 5, it says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil, how much? Continually. Now, that kind of blows your mind. We look out at our world today, and we see that there's a lot of evil in the world. Amen? And we know that it's there because out of the heart come what? All the issues of life and everything, good and bad. So we know it's out there. But the Bible says that just before God chose to destroy the world by a flood, he said the thoughts of the heart were only evil continually. That means that before a person in those days laid down and they were thinking on their bed, you know, just before they nodded off to sleep, the last thought they had was what? Was evil. And then when they woke up in the morning, the first thought they had was what? Was evil too. So that was the state of man in those days. And if anybody needed heart transplants, it was in those days. Amen. But notice the next verse in verse 6. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth. And he was, what's that next word? He was grieved in his heart. Have you ever thought of God being grieved in his heart? A lot of times this life that we live is so in our face that we only seem to have time to think about the things that come at us, right? That, you know, our hearts are grieved. Whether we're having a rocky marriage or a difficult relationship with our kids or we're not getting along with our co-workers at work or whatever it may be, the life we live is so in our face, we're so overwhelmed by it sometimes that we're only thinking about each other's hearts and how 
you know, my heart is grieved or that person's heart is hard or whatever. But what we want to do this morning is we want to focus on God's heart. What about God's heart? The Bible says that because man's heart was only evil continually, that God's heart was grieved. Amen? That he was grieved in his heart. And then we can go on to Acts 13. Let's go to Acts 13 now, where we had our scripture reading. Acts 13. And in this particular chapter, Paul is just coming into Antioch, and he's coming into a synagogue, and he's wanting to share the gospel. And as it would happen in those days, it was very common for them that if somebody new came into the church, into the synagogue, they would ask them if they had some kind of exhortation or some kind of encouraging word to share with them. And that's exactly what they did with Paul. And so they asked Paul if he had anything to say. And in chapter 13 of Acts, verse 16, he says, Then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. So Paul begins to share the beginnings of the gospel story. He wants to share God's heart. Now, how do I know that? It's because of what he says in a few verses down. He wants them to see what God has done for them. So he gives them a little synopsis of how the people of Israel went into Egyptian captivity, remember, and how God brought them out of that Egyptian captivity. But then they desired a king. They kind of fell away and they desired a king. And actually, they desired a king after their own heart. And who was the first king of Israel? It was King Saul. And King Saul started out to be a pretty good man, didn't he? But then what happened? Eventually, he began to listen to his carnal heart, which the Bible says is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, right? And King Saul went from good to worse, right? And finally, of course, that was what the people were like, unfortunately. And so they got a man after their own heart. So then it says in verse 21, afterward they asked for a king, and so God gave them Saul, the son of Kish. It doesn't say a man after their own heart, but that's the implication. And when you read the story, that's really what it was all about. They wanted somebody that was tall and kingly looking, you know, to go out before them and stuff. And he ended up being a man that was just like them. But then in verse 22, it says, and when he had removed him, that is King Saul, He raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. So Paul illuminates the real issue here that Israel was having. They had wanted a king that was after their own heart, but now God wants to give them a king after his own heart. Amen? And then he identifies who that is in verse 23, and he says, From this man's seed, in other words, David's, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. And what can we say about Jesus? Was he a man after God's own heart? Amen. He was God's heart, right? He was God in the flesh and sharing with us what God's heart was really like. Now, when we look at this phrase, we've all used it, we've all read it, but what exactly does it mean when the Bible says, a man after my own heart? You have used the phrase, I have used the phrase, 
In fact, sometimes, you know, we'll use it in talking with friends and all. And we'll see somebody, you know, that let's just say, I'll get a little bit semi-political here for just a second. We'll say, you know, I don't like Trump. And the other guy say, hey, that's a man after my own heart. I don't like Trump either, you know, or I don't like Biden, you know, hey, a man after my own heart. Or if you like strawberry ice cream, ah, that's a person after my own heart, right? We use that phrase a lot. But what does it mean? We know what it means when we're talking about those kind of things. But what does the Bible really mean when it says a man after my own heart, when it calls David a man after his own heart? So we're going to look at what the Bible says about God's heart. And to do that, we're going to go back to Exodus chapter 2. And we're going to begin to look at it. Obviously, we don't have time to look at all the places where it talks about God's heart. But I want us to get an insight into where God's heart is. Because you see, beloved, there are some people that feel that God has a cold and hard judgmental heart. They believe that, in fact, there are New Testament Christians that don't like the Old Testament because they believe it reveals a God that is a hard heart, you know, and he's always exacting vengeance or justice upon his enemies and things like that. But they like Jesus because, you know, he doesn't do that kind of a thing. So we want to look at the whole Bible and see what the Bible says about God's heart. So in Exodus chapter 2, you know the story. God looks down from heaven and he notices the condition of his people as slaves in Egypt. Verse 23, now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God is listening to his people from heaven, amen? He's not so separated that he can't hear them. So God heard their groaning, verse 24, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. So we begin to see the prophet open up an insight or a window into the heart of God here. Jump over to chapter 3, verse 7. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So is it possible for God to know our sorrows? Amen. In fact, this word know in the Hebrew involves a very intimate relationship, an intimate knowing of this. So the Bible begins as it opens up God's heart to us. It reveals to us that God is intimately aware of our sorrows. Isn't that good news? Amen. You know, it is good to know that God not only knows our sorrows, but he's intimately acquainted with them. And he's burdened about it. In fact, we know that from this verse on, it goes on to tell us that God is going to send them a deliverer. Amen? Yeah, his heart is so open to us that he not only hears and feels the sorrows, but he wants to do something about it. And that's good news. Now, let's go over to Isaiah 63, 9. Isaiah 63 Verse 9 says, In all their affliction, he, God, was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them, and he bare them and carried them all the days of old. 
So Isaiah, the gospel prophet, opens up that window a little bit more and says, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. Now, I don't know how many of you older adults here remember a time when, and maybe some of you are teenagers, young people too, maybe, do you remember a time when your parents said when they were just about to give you a whooping? Do they give whoopings anymore? Huh? Spankings or anything like that? Maybe that's taboo these days. I don't know. Anyway, they used to do that. But, but you remember, they might have said, your parent might have said, now this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. Anybody ever heard that? Yeah, yeah. And you thought in your mind, yeah, right. Well, let me tell you something. Having said that, when I was young, and I got spanked once or twice, you know, probably a few more times than Pastor Dan. But I remember saying that, but when I became a parent, the last thing I wanted to do was discipline my children, to spank them, to give them corporal punishment. It did hurt me. It didn't hurt me physically, but it hurt my heart. I didn't want to. The last thing, and I'll give you a clue, young people, really the last thing your parents want to do is have to discipline you, have to punish you for things. They want you to respond. Is that true? I mean, there may be a parent out there that loves corporal punishment. They're you know, sadistic, but that's a case where the CPS needs to come involved, right? That's not normal. That's not normal parents. Most of us do not want to inflict punishment on our children. And this is kind of what the phrase here means. In all their affliction, he was afflicted because a lot of times God's the one that caused the affliction to come upon them. Isn't that right? Yeah, in order to punish them. And then it says, in his pity, he redeemed them and he bared them and carried them all the days of old. Now picture that, friends. We're looking at the heart of God. And we're looking at a picture here that's painted for us of somebody that's carrying their child. Amen? And we've just had some great-grandchildren born in our family. And I think about, you know, taking that little baby in your arms. And that's the most precious thing that you can ever think of, right, that you're holding is a baby. And that's the picture that the prophet is painting here. That's God's heart toward us. Amen? He's wanting to carry us and to provide for us, and he reveals his heart. Now, in Psalms 103, verse 8, it says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. Aren't you glad, young people, that your parents don't stay mad at you forever when you do something dumb? Amen. You know, I did some dumb things when I was young, still do some when I'm old here, but I was so glad that my parents got over it, you know, when I did something dumb. Verse 10, he has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. Have you ever done something so bad, so horrible, that you think you ought to have been struck dead by a lightning bolt? I have. And yet God didn't do it. And sometimes we think that as parents, you know. I mean, aren't you glad that God does not punish us the way we deserve? I didn't hear any amens. Beloved, we all need to be punished. The wages of sin is what? Death. And if God was going to judge us according to the law, we all should be dead today. But God does not punish us according to what we deserve. The Bible says that he has not dealt with us according to our sins. And praise God for that. Verse 11, For as the heavens are high above the earth, 
So great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Listen to this. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame, and he remembers we are dust. That word pity in the English, it doesn't really come across, but in the Hebrew, it means to soothe, to cherish, to love deeply. So as a father loves deeply his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. And so we get a picture of God's heart that is far different than what some people think of as the God of the Old Testament. We get a picture of a God that is tender-hearted. amen? He's carrying us. He's carrying his children. He has pity upon us. He does not discipline us as much as we deserve. He gives us mercy and he throws away or he buries our sins or our transgressions as far as the east is from the west. And so he cherishes us. And this is the picture that we get of our God. Judges 10 verse 16 says, And they, Israel, put away the strange gods from before them and served the Lord. And his soul was grieved for the misery of Israel. Now, if you've read Judges, you know that Israel was in a lot of misery, amen? They did a lot of dumb things that got them into a lot of problems. And so, but the Bible says that God was not gloating after him. He wasn't saying, well, it serves your right. You know, you made your bed, you lie in it. He wasn't saying that. The Bible says that he was grieved for the misery of Israel. Beloved, we're looking at the heart of God this morning, amen? God's heart is grieved for the misery of Israel. And then Ezekiel 33, verse 11. This is a verse that I I just have to say something before I read it. You know, before I became a Christian, I was in the strange headspace of trying to destroy all emotion in me, anything that was emotional, anything that was based on feelings, because feelings and emotion was weakness. That was what I thought, you know. And so I just kind of, I just took all of that out of me and I got really logical and very matter of fact and that kind of a thing. But when I became a Christian, the Lord gave me a new heart and he gave me back those feelings, but I still had to overcome that foolish, false disciplining that I got myself involved in. And I learned that as I read the Bible, I need to read it with the emotion and the feeling that is supposed to be in there. Sometimes we read the Bible, beloved, and we read it like a monotone. We read it like a computer-generated voice, you know, like it's just a monotone. But I want you to listen to this verse and the emotion that I believe is in it. It says, the prophet is saying, Say unto them, God speaking, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked will turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, For why will you die, O house of Israel? You see what I'm saying? God put a lot of emotion. He put his heart into this verse. He does not want us to die. He does not want his own heart to be grieved over our misery. Amen? And so we have the curtains pulled back on what God's heart is like in the Bible. And we see this heart of compassion. We see this heart that is broken down by our misery, we see this heart that is grieved by our sorrows. Now, what do you do when you see a person that their heart is grieved? What do you do? How do you react? Let me give you an example. 
Let's just say that today, before anybody came in, there was a lady that came in and sat up on the front pew here. Nobody else was here yet. You weren't here yet. And she just had her hands in her face, you know, and she was weeping. She was sobbing, you know, and just shaking. It was obvious. And you came in the door and you saw it. What would be the first thing that would happen in your mind and your heart? You'd have compassion, right? And you'd want to do what? You'd want to help her. Yeah, you'd want to go up. In fact, maybe some of you would. You'd come up and you'd put your arm around her and say, hey, you know, whatever it is, it's okay. We'll help you through it. I want to pray with you. Can I help you? Right? You'd want to relieve her grief, her sorrow. Amen? That's an automatic response that we have. In fact, beloved, there's so much of that in America that is good that we often think that it's only a human trait. In fact, we often at times, listen to this, we oftentimes have more compassion for animals than we do for people. Isn't that true? I mean, it's incredible, the inhumanity of man toward man. But nevertheless, most of us, especially as Christians, we see that happening and we want to put our arm around her and we want to relieve that. So here's my question this morning. With that little scenario in mind, we know from the Bible that the Bible says that God's heart is grieved for the misery of Israel. Amen? God's heart is grieved for the heartache that you and I are experiencing. Now, you and I experience that vicariously to a certain degree, but we really can't enter into, you know, the hurts of other people. We just don't have that capacity. But does God? You bet he does. And how long has he been dealing with this heartache? from the very first that it came into his top angel in heaven. Amen? It's been 6,000 years plus that he's been dealing with the sorrow and the grief of all of his children. And he's watching his children, whether they're angels, fallen angels, or men and women, he's watching them go through this grief. And he's been sorrowful for 6,000 years. So here's the question. How do you relieve God's sorrow? If you came in here and you saw God sitting on the front pew, how would you relieve his sorrow, his grief of heart? God sitting there weeping, right? Can God weep? According to the Bible, he can. So how do we relieve his sorrow? You know, there's a couple of statements here I want to share from the book Education, page 263. The author says, the result of hastening or hindering the gospel, in other words, the second coming, right? we think, if at all, is in relation to ourselves and the world. In other words, what the author is saying is that when we think about wanting Jesus to come back really quickly, you know, soon, oftentimes we're looking at it from our own perspective. Lord, please come back so I don't have to deal with this anymore, right? I mean, a lot of times that's where it's at. Few think of its relation to God. Few give thought to the suffering that sin has caused our Creator, All heaven suffered in Christ's agony, but that suffering did not begin or end with his manifestation in humanity. The cross is a revelation to our dull senses of the pain that sin, from its very inception, has brought to what? The heart of God. Think about that for a minute. Think about the times that you've had to endure heartache and sorrow in your life. The worst thing that's ever happened to you. And maybe it went on for years and years. Maybe it's still going on. But now apply that to God. 
that he's been going through that since the inception of sin. And his heart is grieved over it. When Jesus came into Jerusalem, remember how he wept and he cried out to Israel? This is the separation struggle, the author says in Desire of Ages, page 620. The lamentation of Christ is the very heart of God is pouring itself forth. It is the mysterious farewell of the long-suffering love of the deity. So what exactly does God's heart look like? I want to tell you a story in closing. And it has to do with a dream that my wife had. Now, I know that many of us have probably had dreams, and some of us have had dreams that God has sent them. And my wife received this dream many years ago, and she was up praying. My wife is not a good sleeper. She's a light sleeper, and sometimes she wakes up in the you know, early morning, and so she'll get up and she'll pray. My wife is a prayer warrior, and praise God for that. Now, the dream that my wife had, she's able to look out through the walls of the city, the new Jerusalem, because the city is of pure glass, right? It's gold, but it's like pure glass. And she's able to look out there, and she looks out, and she sees the horizon, and the sky is kind of a reddish, orangish, purplish, you know. It's just because the earth is still in the destroyed state there. And down below, you see the horizon. It's kind of black, you know, and there's nothing there. And she looks out there, and she thought she saw something moving. And she continues to look from horizon. She looks around, all the way around. It's all the same, no matter where she looks. And pretty soon as she continues to look, there's a definite feeling that that horizon, you know, that curvature of the horizon, it's moving. And as it's moving, she begins to realize that it is, in fact, moving. And then she remembers, oh, that's right. The wicked have been raised, and they're coming to try to take the new Jerusalem. And so she's just fascinating, you know, and she's watching this, and pretty soon she sees groups of people coming, and she's able to see individuals, but she can't tell who's who. Now, as she continues to watch, there's one individual that she begins to be able to make out, and all of a sudden she recognizes our oldest son, Chad. And he is everything to her. She just loves Chad. They're very much alike. But she realizes, well, actually, she doesn't realize it at the moment, but, but of course we do now, right? She's inside and he's outside. And about the time that she recognizes him, he recognizes her. And he comes running up to the outside of the wall and he puts his hands on the wall and she can't hear him, but he mouths the words, Mom, Mom, let me in. Well. As a mother, what mother wouldn't want to let her son in, right? And so her heart is just thrilled to see her son, and she turns to think to go over to the doors and let him in, and then she realizes, wait a minute, I can't let him in. He's outside. He's lost. He's part of the second resurrection. And she turns, and she shakes her head, and she says, Chad, I can't let you in. And as only a child can do, as only a son can do, He gives her those eyes, you know, and that facial expression when he's asking for something. He says, Mom, Mom, please let me in. Please let me in. And obviously with that, you mothers, you know what I'm talking about. You know how your kids can respond that way and twist your arm and get you to do what they want you to do. And she says, I can't, Chad, I can't. And he says, please, please. This goes on for a few moments. 
And then all of a sudden, Sandy hears a voice above her. And it's the voice of God. And it says, destroy him. And she is just thrown for a loop in the dream. And she just begins to back up. And she's shaking her head. And she says, I can't do that. I can't destroy my own son. And Chad has heard the voice too. And Chad begins backing up from the wall. And he's saying, no, mom, no, mom, don't do it, mom. Please don't do it. He's taking it seriously. And Sandy's beginning to cry and she's backing up. And that voice is ringing in her mind, destroy him. And she's beginning to cry more and more. And she's backing up. And all of a sudden she wakes up in her bed. And she's crying. And then a voice in her head, not one that was audible, but a voice said, now you know my heart. You see, beloved, just as impossible as it would be for us as parents to destroy our own children, to even think of coming to that point where we would put them to death, God feels the same way about his children. He does not want anyone to die. In fact, that's why Ezekiel said, Turn ye, turn ye, for why will you die, O house of Israel? He doesn't want his children to die. And when we talk about answering the question of how do we give relief to the grieved heart of God, how would you do that? How can you put your arm around God and give him relief from the sorrow and the heartache that he's feeling? You know, when I think of my son, he lives clear back in Washington State, I think, you know, I just wish that somebody would go knock on his door. I just wish that somebody would call me and ask for his phone number, call me and ask for his address so that they could go visit him and they could share the gospel with him. As a father, I would just be thrilled in my heart to know that somebody took the time to go look him up and to go share the gospel with him, to share with him that he can have everlasting life. Now, I'm not saying that my son is lost today, but you understand what I'm saying. That's exactly what God wants. He's longing for somebody to go out and knock on the doors of his lost children out there. He's wanting somebody to go out there and share the good news with them, to tell them that there is a God, there is a Father in heaven who loves them and cannot wait for them to come home. And that would give relief to his heart just as it would give relief to our hearts as human parents if somebody did that for our children. Beloved, God's heart would be relieved if you and I went out into our neighborhood and we were seeking those lost children of his, our brothers and sisters. You know, in the parable of the prodigal son, it tells us that the prodigal son finally came to the point where he came back, remember? But have you ever thought about how the father saw him? I mean, let's just say we're here right now, and I'm assuming that there are some people that are on the books here in this church that have not been coming to church for ages, right? And maybe they've left the church. And we pray for them. Maybe we pray for them at a prayer meeting or something like that, or our own prayers. But beloved, if one of them was coming down the road to come back to church, would we know it? No, because we're in here behind these four walls and we can't see it. How did the father know the son was coming back? He wasn't inside the house, beloved. He was out there looking for his son. In order to see his son coming a long way off, he had to be outside the four walls of his house 
looking for his son. And that's what God wants us to do. If you and I are really sincere about giving God relief from his grieved heart, just like we would do with that young woman, then we'll go out and seek those lost children to relieve God's precious heart. How many of you would like to do that today? Recommit yourself this year to relieving God's grieved heart by going out and seeking the lost. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we've seen your heart this morning. We're asking you to give us the same kind of heart, to be a man after your own heart so that we can give you relief by seeking and saving the lost. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You have been listening to Pastor Bob Stewart, Associate Ministerial Director who oversees multi-ethnic ministries for the Michigan Conference of Seventh-day Adventists. If you enjoyed this sermon, why not visit a Seventh-day Adventist church this coming Sabbath? The congregation will enjoy sharing their worship service with you. This has been a Strong Tower Radio production.